welcome to the producer podcast this is the show where we interview successful electronic musicians from around the world and we ask them how they're making their music what they're doing in the studio with software hardware we get into some marketing advice some career advice and the whole goal is to help you guys out there become better producers yourselves better marketers and get your music out there and heard we always have killer producers on this show and this particular show is definitely no different I'm so happy to have James Harcourt joining us from the UK today. What's going on, James? Hiya. Yeah, all good. I've just come back from India from playing a few gigs there. So, uh, yeah, feeling good. Yeah, I saw that on your Facebook. That's probably pretty intense, huh? Yeah, it's intense heat and humidity, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, it's pretty good. I mean, it's a mixed experience musically because what, what's happening there, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of the EDM explosion, yes. particularly over in the States, Tomorrowland. This kind of music is becoming really, really popular. It's not my not my thing. But in a lot of the clubs, the owners, you know, they want to hear that sort of music. So there's kind of warm-up DJs playing 128 BPM EDM. And uh, that's not a great start to the night from my point of view. Well, what but, happens uh, then when you come on? Well, I mean, the, the warm-up DJ was preparing, a, had prepared set... You know, on the this is on the first night. I prepared a set for, you know, suitable for my sort of stuff, sort of stuff. So kind of a deeper, a bit slower. And then we sort of build up the mood that way. Um, but the owner of the club said to him, "Look, you're going to have to crank it up. I want 128 BPM banging EDM." And he apologised to me. And then I kind of have to try and speed things up, and you know, I just have to adjust things in, in a way that I don't really want to do. And you can't, you know, you can't maintain energy when you're having a breakdown every two minutes and, you know, it's not good music, I don't think, really. So, you know, one of the nights was kind of spoiled a bit by that, but on the last night was a, a really cool festival um, in Chennai called Go Madras, which is run by, you know, good music people with the right ideas and they understand how to put on a good production and they understand good music and everything was, you know, that I left on a high because of that. But had I gone home the previous night, I would have left on a bit of a low thinking, well, you know, what the hell's going on with this EDM stuff? <laughs> oh, man, that sucks. Uh, yeah. It's interesting you say that because my show started out as the EDM producer podcast because in the States, I just thought the term meant electronic dance music. That's what I took it as, and it covered all genres. Yeah, um, it did. It used, it used to mean that, but now it seems to have been ad adjusted to mean, uh, you know, the the formulaic stuff that we hear. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then so after talking to enough of you guys, I had to change it because uh, I wanted I wanted to encompass all genres, and that's very interesting that that happened. I'm glad though that you left on a high. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us more about yourself and the kind of music that you produce. Okay. Well, I'd say I sort of fall into the the Bermuda Triangle that's between sort of techno, house, progressive, and dare I say it, kind of electro, electronic. You know, my you know my sound's very electronic. It's not so, what's the word, um, organic sounding as some of the stuff that's out there, but there's, a, there's elements of that. You know, I tried to keep it groovy and dance floor kind of focused, but tried to put my stamp on it as well. But it's, but it's mostly 4-4, club stuff up up tempo i guess sort of one two three to one two six one two seven bpm gotcha i actually really like it a lot it's refreshing music and it's like you said it's it makes you want to dance it's dance floor music no doubt yeah that's what i'm going for you know i mean that i, I started doing it really because i mean i, I you know I, I was a clubber originally i wasn't i didn't just kick off making music i was into punk and you know indie and I guess you call it new wave. I was in bands, not very good bands, playing that kind of music, playing guitar. <laughs> okay. Um, 
music with attitude. I've always liked it ever since I was a kid, basically. And I sort of, I guess that's where I wanted to go with the electronic stuff. I, mean, I was going out to hard house clubs originally, to be honest. I, I, I'd like to say I was, you know, at the Hacienda or into kind of Chicago cool kind of Jeff Mill style techno from the age of four. But that's not really true. I was into goth and <laughs> punk. Uh, and then it was kind of hard house and trance, you know, like what what became, I guess, Psytrance at the start. That was my thing. And I was going to those kind of clubs, really into that stuff. Um, and then I, I think really what happened was I, I, I started to want to mix as well a little bit, just at home, you know, on decks. Mm -hmm. And I was going out to buy music, but I could never buy the stuff I was hearing in the clubs. And in those days, you know, there wasn't the digital thing. So you, you could only get what was there on vinyl. So I thought, okay, well, if, if I'm not going to be able to get this stuff or it's too exclusive for me to buy, you know, I have to wait two years for the stuff to come out, then you know what? I'll try and make it myself. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of how the production thing started, really. That is very interesting. A very cool way to start. And how, yeah. how did that go for you? Well, initially quite badly because it was a real struggle and I didn't really, I mean, to be honest, I didn't really understand the process. I still, I'm still learning now, I'll be honest with you. I, I've never really engaged enough with other people or read, I haven't got the patience to read books and, and, and figure out the, the science behind it, which you kind of need a bit of to do the mixing stuff. Um, so I kind of just dived in there with ideas, and I was full of ideas, which were kind of a, a mishmash of things I'd sort of heard out and about in the, you know, what I could piece together of the weekends afterwards. You know, I'd have memories of, of, of things and, and tracks and, and how things went and sort of the mood and how, how things would change. And I tried to recreate that. Um, well, I guess the production stuff, I mean, I got hold of, I can't remember what it was in those days. I mean, I was started off with Cubase 3.7 and I was using some soft synths that I could never really get a fat sound. You know, there's the mm -hmm. Prophet 52 um, replica um, from native instruments and a couple of other bits like that and some samples um you know sampling the odd bit from my vinyls you know like the, the opening bar of a track and then chopping it up and taking out kick drums and snares and hi-hats kind of like that and just sort of like placing parts on the grid in in cubase and trying to build stuff up from there but in terms of my mixing ability it was it was negligible back then i didn't really you know, I'd never read even future music or anything like that to get any kind of background. So I was literally just throwing this stuff down and kind of just going on my ears as to, you know, what, what blended together and sounded okay. But my, I had no good monitoring. I didn't have good headphones. I had no <laughs> means of testing the stuff. So I guess I, I put together three tracks, which I submitted to a, a label called Release Records in Canada. Um, and I also submitted them to a, a, a shop called Plastic Fantastic in England, which was quite a big kind of progressive house, house, tech house, techno kind of shop. Um, and the guy called me in and he said, look, I think you've got some really great ideas here. And he was focused most on the ideas because the sound was pretty bad. You know, the stuff was quite badly mixed. Right. When I listen back now, there's a couple of them out there on Beatport. You know, I, I really cringe <laughs> just at the, at the sound quality. <laughs> So, but I used to spend hours in there just sort of playing about with stuff and I really enjoyed it actually. I really enjoyed the learning of, of how to build a track and do the arrangement and all that stuff. But my girlfriend, we were in a one bedroom flat at the time. My girlfriend, I think she never really liked that, you know, because she's hearing the same loop over and over again. It's quite frustrating, I think, for someone else who's not involved in the production process, having to listen to someone else putting, putting together a track. Totally. I've had my ceiling banged from under me because I'm in an apartment. And I've, yeah. I've heard the broomstick hit the ceiling down there a couple of times. When oh, I'm man, yeah. Well, well, yeah. 
uh, tell me about it. I, we, we were on the first floor in a block of flats at the time. So below, I mean, below never complained, which is amazing. Maybe they liked it, but, <laughs> you know, the above, I mean, they used to make a lot of noise as well. So, you know, it's kind of give and take, I suppose. <laughs> Would they start stomping on the ground? Yeah, she was doing that all the time. The, the, the lady who lived above, I mean, Joe thought she might be a, you know, like a cool girl or something because there was this sound of footsteps going up and down all through the night. Like, what, you know, why is she getting so many visitors? <laughs> wow. So as far as your mixing, you weren't like rejecting trying to learn from, from other influences, were you? Or like, did you just not know that there was resources out there that you could go to? Like no, future yeah, music? It, it, it's more that it's more the latter. It was just sort of ignorance, really. And ignorance sort of due to just kind of like an absolute fixation on just trying to get stuff done. So, you know, I thought I could just sort of, what's the word, just keep throwing stuff at the wall until something sticks. Whereas, you know, the right. smart thing to do would be to take a step back and think, okay, you know, let's talk to some other people about how they, how they do it. Right. Right. Um, but I was young and I had the brain of like a 14 year old at the time. Really, <laughs> You know, I'm only, <laughs> now I'd say almost in the last two, three years, have I really learned to mix records properly, I think. Oh, that's good. You finally got to that point. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you, uh, when I first heard electronic music to the point where I actually wanted to create it myself, I'm like, this is going to be easy. I play guitar. I play keyboards. This is going to be a piece of cake. I already know music theory. It was the hardest thing. I was in for a surprise. It was so hard to just grasp everything that you need to know to make yeah. a professional polished track. I mean, the, Oh, absolutely. Everything. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of people think it really annoys me because a lot of people think it's the easiest thing to do. Like you say, a lot of people think that. Right. They think you could just throw down a few samples and then boom, you're there. And you right. know, oh, I've got a great sounding kick drum. But everyone knows who produces that a great sounding kick drum in one track is not a great sounding kick drum in another track. Exactly. It's all about the blend and the, you know, it's a it's a real long kind of process getting the you're know, getting to know what to do. Definitely. It's an art. It really is. Yeah. All right. So you finally got up to a level where you're happy with your music. Um so and you said you started off on Cubase. Are you still using Cubase? Uh yeah, I I started on Cubase 3.7 on Windows 98, or the really dodgy one, what was it, Windows Millennium Edition, I think Whoa. it was. And then, um, you know, and there was a lot of talk about Macs, but I, I was always a Windows person before that, so I kind of wanted to stick with what I was comfortable with. And, and now I'm, I'm on Cubase 6.5 on Windows 7. And I, um, I, I, I love the... I, I, I like it, and I'm so comfortable with it that I don't really want to make the change. But there's also a part of me that thinks, well, maybe I should be trying to embrace something else. Ah. But my, it's still that same thing I had when I was younger, that kind of, I don't really want to, the, the time I could be spending coming up with ideas, I don't want to waste that kind of learning a new thing, which may or may not give me any benefit. You see what I mean? Yeah. So that kind of keeps me away from doing it. So I, yeah. I stick with Cubase. I can make the stuff I want to happen happen quickly enough that I don't feel I need another tool at the moment. Absolutely. But sometimes you bring, you can bring another tool in and then you can get a bunch of inspiration. You know, like if you get a new plugin or a new synth or something, it suddenly gives you a burst of inspiration quite often. Exactly. In fact, I, when I need to get work done and I know I'm doing something professionally, I use my, the doll that I like, which is Studio One. I, won't, I wouldn't even question using anything else. But when I'm sitting around just trying to come up with ideas, I try them all. I use Sonar, yep. FL Studio, Samplitude, Cubase, uh, Acid, all of them just to see what they can do. You know? But yeah. when, I, when I'm serious about getting something done, I don't use any of them. So it's, it's interesting like that. Yeah. So do you have any favorite soft synths that you use that you found that you like? Um, I did. I mean, I, I kind of... 
<clears throat> I made the choice to, to to move to some hardware, sort of 2007 time. And prior to that, I'd, I'd, I'd been making my better tracks leading up to that, sort of 2006, 2005, six, using, what's it now, G-Force Mini Monster. So it's like an emulation of the Moog Voyager. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had pretty much just been using that alone. And battery, of course, is, it's, it's not really a soft synth. It's it's a sort of sampler, soft sampler. Right. Not enough people use, are using it, though, by the way. Not enough people. Yeah, not using battery. I don't hear it much, but it's a killer... It's definitely a killer plug-in. Oh, right. No, I didn't. I didn't know how popular it was. I mean, I'm. I'm really the new cut of it. The the I think it's battery three, the new one. Uh, I, I I absolutely love it. I mean, I, the other one had some glitches that was kind of that would annoy me. I'm not sure if it was a Cubase thing or a right or or a battery thing, but the new one is is absolutely awesome. I love it. Yeah, I love the way you can just sort of tweak your kick drums and the the tail of, of the, you know. It's a really nice interface, and yeah, I, I'm really comfortable with it. So yeah, battery is a stalwart. It's there in every track. And uh, the, the soft synths have gone away since then, though. I don't really use the, the mini monster. So you're over I'm, to hardware synths now? Yeah. Well, I, initially I just I thought, okay, I'm I'm using this one synth for everything, and I'm making a lot of music, and I'm serious about it. So why don't I get the hardware version of the Voyager? You know, the Move Voyager. One came up on eBay at a really good price. Um, I had to travel quite a long way across England to get it with my at the time I think four-year-old, three-year-old son. <laughs> I thought, you know, this is this is a journey worth making because I want one of these things. And um, <laughs> Although it doesn't have, there's certain things that the soft one has, you know, it has a, has a delay feature and sort of um, has polyphony, you know, whereas the, 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 the hardware Voyager, you can, it's, it's one note at a time. Ah. Some little things like that. And of course, the, the, the MIDI control in the grid in Cube, the arrangement grid in Cubase is so much better for a soft synth because you can kind of draw, you haven't got the, with MIDI, you know, you've got like the zero to one, two, seven setting thing. Mm-hmm. So when you're sending the MIDI, you know, you can't get like a really smooth, fine, granular sort of um, curve or, or rise. You know, right. you've got like the, the steps thing. So th- there's a few downsides to it, but the sound of it is just so fat. You know, you find I find myself having to sort of EQ stuff away from it, whereas with the other one, I was having to try to find ways to boost it. Interesting. It kind of didn't have the same. There's the soft ones doesn't quite have the same low end, and I can never put my finger on what it was about it. That um, is, what, what kind of interface are you running it through to get it into you, your DAW? Okay, so it's going. Everything's going through probably the weakest link in the whole chain <laughs> here, which is the Steinberg Midex Eight, which is a, a, a an eight way MIDI hub. So I kind of got a whole bunch of spaghetti junction-esque midi cables running out of my various hardware devices into that and i use a an ovation zio which is a it's a synth but i don't use it as a synth i just use it as a controller it's a small full-size keys but like 25 key controller and that sends its signals to uh, to the to the midex well how are you uh, getting the audio in from the oh, the audio is coming the audio is coming in to the um i'm using an echo audio fire 12 oh they're good yeah, which is a really good one because it's a rack mountable, thin kind of job. It's really nice and simple. It's got a, you know, twelve in, twelve out. Yeah, and they have good converters too. Yeah, really good quality converter. I mean, I noticed a big difference when I got that compared to the thing I had before, which I can't remember what it was now. I think it might have been an Alesis or yeah, um, no comparison, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the conversion on this is, is is nice. Yeah, I like Echo. That's that's a good setup. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I've got um, a Juno 106, a Moog Voyager. I use both of them a lot. I've got a Yamaha TX7, 
which is more my kind of 80s loving thing. But oh, a, D a DX7? No, a TX7. A so it's TX7. like the little module version of it, which is uh, is enough to make me not use it so much because I like to have actual keys, you know, to play. Right, right. Um, so that one's a bit annoying. I've got a, a, a 303 original, but I th it's a bit broken and oh. uh, there's some stuff wrong with it. And it's fiddly to program. Whatever anyone says, the 303 is annoying to program. <laughs> You know, so it just takes that bit too long to get stuff going. And then syncing it up, you know, and you can sync it, you can time sync it, but the kind of the cue point of it, it was always slightly off. So I either have to adjust everything in the grid or in the end, I kind of just don't use that on the TX7. But the Nord, the Moog Voyager, the Juno 106, and I've got another Roland, old Roland one called the JP8080. And that's my set of synths. And I pretty much use them all the time. Now, do you find that that's, you know, you enjoy using the hardware and it's workable compared to soft synths or? Yeah. I mean, I enjoy it probably more in terms of making the sounds and building the sounds and sort of tweaking them. And when they're all playing together, you know, but there's, there's downsides. Like I say, there's the, con the, the control of stuff when it's in the box and it's all in the door. Yeah. It's just slightly greater. Yeah. You've got more control. You know your recall's going to work. So when you close it down and you go on holiday and you come back, it's going to be the same. Whereas right. with these synths, you know, it's not. It just is. It never is the same, no matter <laughs> what you do. The Nord is actually quite accurate. You can get that one back. But the Moog, if it's not like about a semitone out, then there's some other tonal difference about it. And you kind of, uh, you feel pressure to commit it to audio. Do you know what I mean? I always feel like I've got to commit it to audio uh, on the day when I'm doing it. Or I've got to leave it on overnight and then come back. I, I don't trust turning it off and reloading a patch yeah well it sounds it sounds like you have to yeah <laughs> very cool though i i enjoy hearing how people are using hardware because uh, a lot of guys i interview they do everything in the box and i i like the sound of hardware and analog synths but i always thought it would be too much of a pain to get everything in there and set up right and recorded properly but yeah i hear it, your tracks and you, you could hear the difference you know there is a there, there is a um the, the setup is quite painful. I mean, if you add them bit by bit, then it's not quite so bad. But when I had to dismantle this lot and then set it back up, I was kind of like, oh, my God, you know, there's guys with a laptop and it's just all ready to go and right. crawling around on the floor <laughs> with cables trying to get this stuff to work. I know, man. I know. Very cool. Well, thanks for telling us about your studio and your hardware. That's very interesting stuff. Cool. Now, uh, as far as your career, let's, you know, I'm, you've been doing this for a long time and... Yeah, on Definitely. and off since, I don't know, 1999, I guess. Yeah, there's, that, been, there's been some breaks, but... Okay, it's still pretty amazing, and, and you've probably amassed much experience along the way. But let me ask you this, what do you feel has really helped you most in your career to get from where you started to get where you are now? Um, okay, well, I mean, in terms of... There's, there's, there's a few different ways you can look at that. There's where I am in terms of ability to produce. I think it's just about just constantly learning it's like it's a, it, there's not one thing you can pinpoint but in terms of recognition and dj gigs and sales and you know the, those kind of things i think i'm trying to think of what the, what the moment was really i guess it was starting my record label in 2006 that um, really helped it along huh yeah that that gave it a push for because in when I made my first track sort of around 1999 2000 time i was just really a guy in a room in a flat not really knowing what I was doing, coming up with some ideas that were okay, and then sort of hitting the jackpot with a couple of tracks that Paul Oakenfold and Hernan Catania were into. Got onto a couple of, you know, a CD, John yeah. Double O Fleming CD. And, but I, there wasn't really, 
any momentum. So I kind of just drifted out of it again for for two, three years. Oh, man. And had my first son and I kind of just lost a bit of focus. But then I had renewed enthusiasm for it sort of around 2004, 2005. What, what, started, what caused that to happen? Um, I think it was that the music started getting better, hmm. you know, and I, I, I kind of kept my hand in listening to the stuff that was being released and the stuff that was on vinyl on Juno and stuff and stuff like that. But I noticed that the, I wasn't really into the tribal sound when it came along. I was into the trance and the progressive trance stuff of 19, the late nineties, right. but the kind of dark, slightly miserable sounding tribal stuff that came along. I wasn't so into that. So I, I stepped away from it a bit and I wasn't as driven, wasn't as motivated. But then sort of 2004, five time, there was some fresher sounds coming along. And this guy in the UK, Milo came along with a bit of a retro sound, but also quite a futuristic kind of funky sound. And I, I heard some stuff on Radio 1. I just was like, okay, these things are getting better. I, I want to make some music again. Hmm. So I, I started the label, Twisted Frequency. Um, and then, you know, I was signing tracks and talking to producers and having doing remixes for people and then, you know, exchanging ideas with a couple of producers out there. You know, I just, I just got more engaged in the scene again. I think oh. that, that, that led to... That was like the first bump up if you like because then i started releasing music again on a regular basis and, and getting some recognition i see and, and then i think the thing that really helped it along came there was like a gradual increase in momentum but then sort of i think it was midway through 2007 or 2008 i, I had some tracks get quite high up on beatport which then gives you a right kick as well because you, you know more people are seeing you um i had a track that was number one or on the tech house chart on beatport for quite a long time and and then it sort of things reached another level and the gig offers came along and more remix offers came along. But in a way, it was kind of like not a good thing because my focus prior to that was purely on making good music, signing good music, you know, on the, on the kind of the, the releasing stuff and the production stuff, either as a producer, a remixer, or bringing in other people's productions and remixes. But then the focus sort of changed a bit more to, to DJing, which I thought I could just do with my eyes closed and carry on with the same production focus but in the end the two kind of got in each other's way and i wasn't not doing it either properly really for a bit wow so do you were you djing locally or all over the world um a, a couple of local things but in in the uk but it was it was all over the world really it was all over europe now what you know, caused it to uh to conflict just the time yeah the time really i was spent i was the time that i would have been spent producing was time spent away Gotcha. Uh, yeah, it just, uh, I look back now, I didn't realize it at the time, but I look back now, but I think the DJing kind of interfered with the production because my production process is quite weird. I can spend quite a long period of time sort of what seems to be achieving nothing and messing around, but really it's kind of building up an, an, a, a sort of an arsenal of sounds or, or ideas, basis to, uh, from which something will grow and then, you know, I'll be off the mark and in a couple of days I'll produce something good. But I wasn't doing that anymore. And I was just kind of setting aside periods of like two, three hours to to sit down and try and actually produce a track from nothing. Right. And it just wasn't the same as the, the tinkering kind of approach that I had before. Hmm. And not spending as much time as it. I don't, I don't know. I, I think DJing and production is a very different things. And I, I guess I thought they were quite similar and I was wrong. Huh. Well, DJing, I mean, you were probably getting paid for the gigs, I'm assuming, right? Um, yeah, at the time, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, was that, you know, helping you, like, uh, 
Well, were you working full time along with that, or was producing and DJing your full time gig? No, I, I was always working. I mean, I was doing, I almost was doing two jobs really because wow. I was doing some some stuff with my um, with, well, with my girlfriend's dad, and I was, you know, I was working as well. I got gotcha. you. I mean, I was just thinking that maybe the DJ gigs were freeing up time because you had an income like stream now that you didn't have before. But yeah, I had an income stream, but you know when. When you've got children, it's not a reliable enough income stream. I mean, right. you know, and also, it, it's how, how sustainable is that as a, right. you know, sure. it's, it's not as it's not it's not it's not as sustainable as some other things. Is there's an uncertain? I mean, I'm a guy who likes security, so I like to have my I like to have some steady income streams as well as the unreliable. Ones. <laughs> yeah, that's very comforting to have. I know yeah. what you mean. Well, uh, I actually had some questions based off of what you said. You talked about getting to the top of Beatport. How did you do that? Well, I didn't actually do anything. I didn't do any kind of social media stuff at the time. I mean, this was 2008. Okay. I, I can't even remember. I think I probably started a Facebook page, but maybe I hadn't. I, I, I wasn't really active, you know, as some people are, for example, nowadays on, on social media. And I didn't get the love for that particular release from Beatport, so they didn't give me any advertising. I'd given it out. I'd done my usual promotion round, so I send the tracks to, to the DJs who actually listen and open emails from me and who know me. Um, and I had Audio Jack was supporting and Dinox and Beckers were supporting and a couple of guys. But really, there was nothing different to all of the other ones. I think that one sort of tuned in with what people were into at the time. There was a, a certain kind of sound and groove. And I, I don't feel it's my best track by a long way, but it was the one that, you know, then once you get into that, visible space at like that top 10 and people you know sort of perpetuate sales and people keep buying and it kind of went from there you know and it ended up selling at one point it was like 200 a day and it was in the end it was over 10,000 and you know an arachnofunk which was two or three singles before which i think is a lot better you know that only made it to sort of 400 500 or something wow. so it, i not don't think it necessarily reflects the quality of the ideas or the originality or anything like that but it's um it definitely gets you visible and there's a lot of lazy people who don't look beyond those top 10s or right. beyond the top 100s who, who just aren't aware of anything. They, they won't dig any deeper. So you suddenly in the consciousness of all those people. I see. That makes sense. And, you know, you already made connections to kind of get your music out there before by starting your record label, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was quite a big thing, actually. Now, why did you have the I'm just curious how you had the idea when you got back into music after you, you left it for a couple of years. Why did you decide to just immediately to start a record label? What was the impetus for that? Um, I think I wanted to have a a brand. Oh, I, I'd been signed, like I say, to this Canadian label, and it didn't really work out amazingly. Well. I didn't have that many releases, and I was quite often being given direction on what kind of music to make, and you should be trying to do this or try and make something that sounds like that. And I guess it was a reaction to that. I wanted to have something that I was in control of. Gotcha. Uh, and I wanted to control my own output the way the releases looked, you know, how the vinyl, the, the print was on the center of the vinyl. And I did that, you know, and I had a bunch of, I think the first 12 or 13 releases, 14 releases went out on, on wax. Uh, Cause it was in the crossover, you know, when we had sort of vinyl and, and digital. Um, yeah. And I guess that, that was the main thing. I see. Very cool. I mean, it's, it's great advice you gave so far. Now, if you could give one piece of advice, your best piece of advice to an aspiring producer right now who wanted to take their music to the next level, get it out there and get it heard, like I mentioned the, at the beginning of the show, what would you tell them? Um, well, this is really difficult at one, actually, because I, I, 
I, I think nothing can really beat having some support from someone who 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 can make a difference for you. You know, some uh, getting hmm. support of a DJ. I mean, in my case, there was in like 2000 or whenever it was. You know, this guy Hernan Catania and Paul Oakenfold got hold of the track. But I think they got hold of it via the record label I was signed to because they had some connections in there. So, you you know, on the one hand, I could say, well, have a, social, have a SoundCloud page and make sure that you tweet to as many users as possible when you've got a track out. But quite often, that's just hitting dead ears, you know. And if you go onto one of these Facebook promotion, paid promotions, you're reaching a lot of people who aren't going to, Probably aren't going to buy it. Probably aren't going to. The recognition isn't going to mean anything. You need you need some way to to get to someone who's who's who people are listening to, who's actually going to make some waves, like a tastemaker. Right. So it's really hard to do it. It's I, personally, I think some of the mistakes I've made is releasing too much stuff on my own label. I think what people can do is try to get uh, try to get some releases on some on some good labels with some you know with good uh, followings. But that's easier said than done. No, so, but it's, at least you're pointing them in the right direction with something yeah. that they should I mean, I think strive one, one, for. One thing they can do is is try to put together not just one track and send it out, but like a group. Mm-hmm. So like a, a show reel of like five plus tracks. Because a lot of the good labels, they want to sign EPs from artists. They don't want to sign a track and then pay thousands for you know a bunch of remixes. I see. It works better if you've got like a really good, strong uh, EP of tracks. Okay. So I think... Get, sort of keep producing stuff try to short hone it down to like three, four or five really good quality ones and then be quite selective as to who who you let listen to it initially but that's the hard bit because you can't just make people listen because people you know in, in this day and age there's thousands of demos floating around it's right. very hard to get to get noticed and that's the bit i can't advise on because even now i don't really know how to break some barriers down um <laughs> it's quite tricky no but what you gave is very good and I think people people should definitely do that. It gives them a real good shot. And if they're persistent in that advice you just gave, eventually they're going to hit. So, Yeah, I think the quality thing, try, trying to put quality over quantity is a big thing as well. So rather than being in a hurry, um, you know, take the time, make the tracks, allow yourself time to, like a week or so after you finish the track, to come back to it and then listen to it with unbiased ears as well. So you can go through that quite sort of, a ruthless process of, of ruling out the stuff that isn't quite up to it. Right. You know? And if it's club music or the stuff that I'm playing, then, you know, only really be happy with it. If you know, for sure you can play that yourself and, uh, you know, without wincing, you know, you can play it alongside the stuff you would normally play and be completely happy with it. And I, you know, there's been times I haven't done that and I've let stuff go that isn't quite up to that level. And you, you end up living with that on the discography or living with it as part of hmm. your reputation. So, the quality control as well. I, I wouldn't. I'd say you know, make sure that you you're absolutely sure about all the stuff that you send out. I see. That yeah, makes perfect sense. Great advice. Well, thanks, James. Uh, tell people where people. <laughs> I'm gonna have to edit that out. Tell us where people could find out more about your music and you know connect up with you. Okay. Well, I've got. Obviously, the label Twisted Frequency, which is sort of like the hub of, of all the things I do. So you can go to www.twistedfrequency.com. Um, I've also got my SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com forward slash James Harcourt. And the Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash James Harcourt. And 
I've got a couple of bits on. I, I shouldn't really give the Mixcloud link because there's so little there at the minute that you're not going to find too much. But if you look for James Harcourt tagged on on uh, Mixcloud, you'll find a few bits as well. Awesome. Now we're going to have all those links in the show notes. So if you guys missed them, don't worry. We're posting this up at theproducer.club. You can just do a search for James Harcourt there. Also, we have our SoundCloud channel at soundcloud.com slash theproducerpodcast, and all the notes will be there as well. Well, James, thank you very much for doing the show. It gave amazing information. People are really going to get a lot out of it. And I hope everybody listening enjoyed it. That's going to be it for the Producer Podcast for today. 